It was a time when pro wrestling was a pop culture phenomenon. Talk about your songs, talk about John 316. Austin 316 says I just whipped your ass. Pay-per-view quality matches live on free TV every Monday night. Monday, July 6th. Back at the battle between WCW Monday Nitro and WWF Monday Night Raw. It's me, Austin! Oh, son of a bitch! What? It's me, Austin! It was me all along, Austin! This is Reliving the War with Simon Tackler and Nims Azul. You can call this the new world order of wrestling brother welcome everyone to another edition of reliving the war where we go through the monday night wars bit by bit pay-per-view by pay-per-view and pretty much relive the war my name is nims Azor, joined as always by my tag team partner simon tackler for the gray wolf wrestling network and simon this is a monumental pay-per-view for the wwf in 1997 Yes, it is one of the big four pay-per-views. It's the WrestleMania of the summer, but everything changes after SummerSlam 1997, both in-ring and outside the ring. Yeah, a real pivotal moment for the WWE and wrestling in general, like a huge pay-per-view. SummerSlam 97, heart and soul. It's Bret Hart. It's The Undertaker. Shawn Michaels is the special referee. At the time, you couldn't think of a bigger match for the WWE. Um, But yeah, things change in a way that I don't think they were expecting. Oh, 100%. And you talk about how much of a big match this is too, because it's also the first time we see Shawn Michaels on a pay-per-view in a fairly long time, and we're coming off the red-hot Canadian stampede as well. So we've had the absolute peak of Bret Hart in, in 1997, and now we get straight to the second biggest pay-per-view of the calendar. Let's get straight into it. In fact, they get straight into it as well. There is no intro. It is straight to the national anthem before even the signature and the video packages and stuff like that. And an interesting choice. Do you reckon that's to offset the Canadian stampede the month before? Yeah, I think that's what this was, the contrast. We had the super Canadian show, and now they're like, we're back on home soil. Let's play the anthem. But you know what? It gave it a big feel because we usually only see that at WrestleMania. So this was the WWE saying we can still put on the huge shows because WrestleMania 13, remember we said it didn't really feel like WrestleMania. Yeah. This felt like the first really big show since Royal Rumble 1997, which was in a stadium. It felt huge. So this was them saying, all right, we do the big shows. We're back on track. We've got, you know, a hundred countries and half a billion (laughs) people, like the signature says. In over eight different languages. That's the part that always gets me because it's just like, oh, look, that's a lot of countries to translate for. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Is that something you should brag about? A hundred countries, but only seven languages. <laughs> um, getting into this. Now, we mentioned we were pretty heavily critical of Bash of the Beach with their intro video. It was just like clips from Nitro, whereas the WWE really stepped up the plate for their video package for the main event. I mean, it is absolutely fantastic talking about the fairness of life. You know, is it fair that a man can be cheered by like all of this stuff and that, like just talking about how Bret Hart is such a conflicted soul, how the undertaker while a, while a cool champion, while a, while a fighting champion has a deep dark secret. And is it fair that Shawn Michaels, you know, like can have, influence so much for someone that he hates so much it's just so well done 
Okay, I was watching this and yeah, I couldn't think of a bigger contrast from WCW's high school film project <laughs> garbage that was thrown together, especially Bash at the Beach, where we noticed they didn't even have a voiceover. It was just clips from promos with a weird voice effect. This I will put in my top five pay-per-view like hype packages. I couldn't remember it and watching it back. I was like, my God, what a video. Who yeah. wrote these? I tried looking it up. I don't know who wrote the scripts for these because this was absolutely brilliant. If life were fair, and they kept going back to it, if life were fair, good and evil, and like you said about the guys in the main event, this was so good. I can't say enough good things about it. And, of course, Jim Fagan, who does the voiceover, A-plus for this video. And then it kicks straight into the intro, and Vince is pumped, and <laughs> I love I absolutely love pumped Vince and JR and, uh, and King are there at the three man booth. It's, they set the stage up so well already. Like we've had the anthem, we've had the signature, we've had the video package. It's already hyped. Everything's, it's like a powder keg here. And then we get, we start off the event with Triple H versus Mankind in a steel cage match. What I found very interesting is Hunter still has the blue blood kind of mannerisms. Yeah, he's really sort of like one foot out the door from his blue blood Connecticut mansion. Like he's trying to mm. leave, but part of his persona is still stuck there. The music, he's curtsying less. He's doing less of like the I'm a rich guy hand movements yep. to the crowd, but it's still a little bit of, you know, the Hunter Hearst Helmsley and he's not necessarily Triple H yet. He's a little bit of both, but... This match, kicking it off with Triple H and Mankind in a steel cage, this is just another thing of them saying, this is a huge pay-per-view. Even though both guys were like upper mid-carders, this felt like a main event, the way the match mm. unfolded. And it was really cool too how, like, I always love the things, you can say whatever you want about Triple H, uh, but he's got some great wrestling logic. I love the first thing he does is trying to escape the cage at the door because it's mm. just like, it makes sense. It, it did do that. He also has one of my favorite spots in an Iron Man match where he uses a chair to get a DQ and then steals a pin afterwards. Like yep. he, he just uses logic in there. But I thought it was pretty interesting that JR is bringing up Cactus Jack more and bringing up that Mick Foley has multiple personalities. And China, you forget just how much of an integral part China is to the Triple H and Mankind story because she's very much, take China out of the match. It completely changes the feud. Yeah, and, and on that too, Mick Foley explained in his first book that a lot of guys didn't want to sell for China. So Foley went out of his way as like, I'm the hardcore guy, nothing hurts me. If I can sell for her, then you should too. So mm. Mick Foley, you're right, watching this back, he went out of his way to make her look good. And, you know, the chemistry between Triple H and, and China, the way they cheat, and then the chemistry with Foley as well. Foley and Triple H, we've mentioned before, have great chemistry, but you're right. China was a really important part of this uh, early part of their feud. There's so many cool spots in this. This is, and, you know, for better or worse, this is the era where they don't really, they throw everything at the wall. They don't really care about what happens tomorrow because you get some, a superplex off the top of the cage. You get a very, very cool spot involving the cage. It's, and it's the old bars cage as well. It's not Big like blue. the mesh. Mm. Yeah, yeah, the big blue cage. So when they go into it, they really, really do get hurt. And there's a cool little sequence where China costs mankind the exit and then throws the chair into the ring, um, like over the top, which then gets pedigreed on. And then 
the, the mankind goes to do um triple h goes to do a pedigree on the chair mankind reverses it and then takes with the chair takes out china it's like everything has a chain reaction to this match and it's so good yeah, there were so many great spots. So when China got hit in that bump too, she flew off the cage and onto the guardrail. The bit from this match that stuck out to me, I always remembered it as a kid and I was waiting to see it again to see how painful it looked and if it still looked brutal. China slams the cage door on Mankind's head mm. and I swear one of the big blue bars just smashes him right in the skull. Like it looked so bad. Um, but it is. This- it's so brutal, yeah. The way this match built, too, in its brutality as well was really cool. It started slow. They didn't really use the cage. Then we saw the interference with China and the chair and the slamming the head. And then Triple H, you know, was throwing Foley into the cage because you can't grind someone's face on this cage Mm. because of the big, you know, gaps. It's not the mesh. So they worked in some interesting ways to still make it violent. The only thing I noticed about this i haven't seen a blue cage match in years i haven't gone back and watched any it was way shorter than i remembered it's not that tall no no it really isn't and and maybe it's because i don't know like is it because triple h and mankind are actually fairly tall guys or i remember it being huge yeah i swear like hulk hogan mm. and all that surely it was bigger I can I can remember at least at WrestleMania two, and because I think the last cage match was actually at SummerSlam '94, so it's been a long time since they've had a cage match. Because you'd always have them the camera angle where it'd be like you know Hulk and King Kong Bundy like looking up at how tall the cage was, mm. because they never really sort of did that set set shot of like oh look how look at this enormous <laughs> structure. Maybe that's another reason why that's what happened, and also because it did seem like they were able to climb up it pretty quickly. Yeah, that's and true. Not-, <laughs> not like the video game where your guy takes forever, left arm, right arm. These guys were like, well, I'm basically at the top. Yeah. Talking about spots though that you remember as a kid, like the one that always stands out for me is Mick doing the elbow off the top. Yeah. Back at the back at the day, back in the day. Now it happens a dime a dozen. But when that happened, that was like, I can't believe he's going to do this. And he <laughs> it was probably one of the biggest spots since then. So much so that they reference super uh, superfly snooker. That's how long ago it's been since a massive spot like that. Yeah, and this was a great bit of storytelling because we've mentioned how on Raw in this era, JR did the sit-down interviews with Mankind. Mankind revealed that he was Cactus Jack and he was Dude Love when he was a kid and he loved Superfly and he went to that show in Madison Square Garden. The crowd cottoned onto this really quick. Like near the end of the match at one point, Foley has Triple H down and out and he looks up at the the cage and the crowd starts chanting, Super fly. Super fly. Super yeah. fly. And then one funny bit, though. So Foley basically has a match one. He climbs out, but then he thinks, no, nah, I'm going to go back up and do the splash. He rips his shirt open. And what was meant to happen, he was meant to have the heart tattoo on his chest like he had in the old home video. But mm. the match was so sweaty that it wore off. <laughs> and he t- talks about it in his book. So basically, he rips the shirt, and it was meant to be a dramatic moment. Like, oh, my God, he's channeling dude love. Look at the heart but the heart was gone. But anyway, it's a great (laughs) moment either way. And then I forgot the ending because I thought that Foley does the super fly elbow drop kind of splash thing. And then he just, you know, and then he wins. Hmm. I didn't remember that they did one last fake out. So Foley climbs the cage. 
he's going to win. But then China sneaks in to drag Triple H out. Triple H out. So yeah. you think, oh, no, they're going to screw us and Triple H is going to get dragged out. But Foley still beats him and it's a huge pop. What a great moment. It's a massive pop. A great match to start it off. It's one of the hottest matches you will sort of see there. The very end, though, dude loves music starts. Like he plays the Mankind Exit theme, which is the nice, happy piano piece that we've talked about before. And then the dude love theme kicks in, and he does, you see the foot tapping. Like and he's all coming of a sudden, back to life. <laughs> yeah. It was, it was it's so corny. Good. It's corny, but it's just, it's Mick Foley is the guy that can pull it off. Mick Foley's the same guy that can change his t shirt and make it seem like death. He's the same guy that can, you know, be revived by some 70s cheesy um um disco, disco music. music only yeah. mick foley could do it if this was stone cold or roman reigns we'd be like oh you've ruined him but the second he's because when the mankind music cut out i thought oh is this a technical glitch why'd they cut his music mm. and then when the dude love music kicked in and his foot started <laughs> tapping i was smiling the whole time i thought i love this and then he danced back to life and like dance and the crowd wasn't like oh this is lame everyone loved it it was so good did, and before we move on to the next match, did you see the bit where there's a guy in the crowd dressed as Dude Love <laughs> yes. and Mick goes up to him and gives yeah. him a big hug? <laughs> that guy would so have loved good. it. But <laughs> another thing too, I forgot how much I loved the Dude Dude Love theme song. Whichever mm. WWE volume the music was, I had that one. Listen to that song all the time. I think it's WWE The Music Volume 3 off the top of my head because that's the one. That's the grey cover with the WWF logo on the front. Yeah, and I think that had like, you know, Kane's theme and the Outlaws yeah. and, and the cool Ministry Undertaker. That was a good one. Yeah. Fun fact about those um, WWF The Music Volume 4s, um, WWF The Music, just as an idea of how hot wrestling was. When um, WWF The Music Volume 5 came out in 2000 or, two, you know, yeah, 2000, it went to number one on Billboard. Wow. Like, that's crazy. Yeah. Damn. Oh, actually, I was going through some old boxes of CDs the other day. You know what I found? WWF aggression when they had oh. all the rappers do the um, Attitude Era theme songs. It was good. That's going to be interesting. That's going to be good when we get to uh, watching Backlash 2000 because they swapped <laughs> all the themes out. So, and you had like DX come out to the Run DMC version of their theme. And I hated that Run DMC one. <laughs> Or what about yeah, that- um, Ice T's Godfather theme? Just pimpinate, pimpinate, easy man. <laughs> just like five hundred times. Uh, the Big Show one was pretty good, but it's it's pretty easy to improve the Big Show theme. But <laughs> yeah. um, but we move on. Now this is this is, we talked about like you know from the get go. This is like a really really big pay view, and then there's this really weird little segment with Todd Pettingill and the Headbangers and Gorilla Mon and Gorilla Monsoon. And some politician, the governor of New Jersey, was it? Like, is that who, yeah. that's who it was? Because that's where they were. And did you notice the crowd reaction? They all booed her. Oh, booed everyone. So I did some research. I wanted to see who she was and why the crowd may have booed. So we all hmm. can assume where Vince McMahon lies politically, especially considering Linda McMahon was part of Trump's cabinet. Trump's administration, yeah. So anyway, this governor, she was a Republican, and we're not going to assume the crowd at that time would be all Republicans. So anyway, they booed her because she was kind of controversial, even though Vince McMahon loved her because she lowered taxes for pro wrestling events. Mm -hmm. That's why WWE could run New Jersey again. So they had her, you know, sort of uh, in the back pocket or whatever. So, but anyway. The best way, yeah. She was controversial. She had a famous quote that I guess went viral for its time when she claimed that African-Americans 
were like lazy or whatever because they would play a game called Jewel in the Crown. And what Jewel in the Crown was, it was about how many kids you can have out of wedlock. And everyone Jeez, heard nice. that. And they were like, that's not a thing. <laughs> and you're crazy. <laughs> so anyway, and yeah, that was like a big controversy at the time. But anyway, w- uh, Undertaker gave her the WWE world title. So uh, look, a- an interesting, an interesting segue there too. Like the best way I could describe it, going by Jewel in the Crown, this seemed like a New Jersey version of those Saudi <laughs> propaganda yes. pieces that yes. you saw on Crown Jewel. That's basically what this was, talking about Crown Jewels. There you go. <laughs> and then we but see was- Tiger Ali Singh and Jeet Singh in the crowd. And Vince McMahon's like, oh, Tiger Jeet Singh, one of the all-time greats. No, he's not. The best part of that, too, was King talking about Tiger Jeet Singh going, what an ugly hat. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> My God. <laughs> could not do that oh man but and then you have more fluff pieces and this is something that you that the wwf did a lot of you know those like you know highlights of the wwf beach party where it's got like you know oh look here's his accent smash wearing um street clothes shaking hands with you know children and all that sort of stuff yeah it was weird to have this back-to-back though but i mean the crowd had to come down from seeing a cage match in the open this yeah, was interesting. Yeah. So, so we saw the beach party and all the wrestlers, you know, out in New Jersey doing like a pep rally. Someone had a sign and it was like, hey, Austin, open up a can. So I guess he started saying open up a can of whoop ass at this time. Hmm. But this was before Austin would drink beer on TV. So we didn't know what the can was because the picture was a can of Campbell's soup and it said whoop ass. Oh, yeah. And I thought, when I first saw it, I thought, what an idiot, it's a beer can. And then I thought, hold on, how could we assume it was a beer can at the time? Could have been a can of anything. But the so fact it that it was a, can a can soup can. But the, yeah, people are just really underest- over underestimating Austin's intellect. So he knows he's smart, dude. He's just a big Andy Warhol fan. <laughs> like That's good <laughs> pop art. Yeah, like, <laughs> could have been a can of beans. But I thought that was funny because my instinct was to think that fan was an idiot. No. Austin never told you what the can told was. Told you what the can was, yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah. And it does make sense, you know, go to the supermarket and get a can of whoop-ass kind of thing. Exactly. Why would you think it's a beer can? So I thought that was good. That's blown my mind now. We've been retroactively, because we've seen Austin and beer so much, we're retroactively, like Mandela effect thought <laughs> to think, anytime a can is mentioned yeah. with Austin in the context, it's beer. Yeah, not in 97. <laughs> Um, so we move on to the next match, and this is Goldust versus Brian Pillman. Now, the loser has to wear a dress on Raw the next night. And we mentioned this in the Canadian Stampede bit, but ever since Goldust, you know, dropped all the theatrics and the, you know, the, the gorgeous George sort of flamboyant, um, you know, the the over-characterization of being a homosexual, because that was, you know, very controversial back then. It's theatrics, ha, ha, ha. Um, <laughs> He's really like stepped up. He's he's really got his working boots on, and this is no exception, too. Yeah, I'm, it's really weird. This match was pretty good, especially like from Goldust standpoint. But you hear reviews of Goldust at the time, and there were certain wrestling critics who didn't think Goldust was any good. But now they rave about Dustin Rhodes and say, "Oh my God, he's always been good. He was good in this era too." And mm. I thought, mm. I know Pillman had his injuries and his troubles at the time. I thought Goldust got a pretty good match out of Pillman here. It's not amazing, but it was good. Very, it was very serviceable, and and there was you know there was that little bit of Goldust sort of theatrics sprinkled in because he kisses Brian Pillman, and Pillman he's got Pillman's got his makeup 
running all over it. Goldust gets the win and Pillman loses his mind afterwards. But you're right. This was a perfectly serviceable match. Well, we, we should explain, though, the, the loser has to wear a dress. That was the stipulation yes, for the match. Yeah, yeah on Raw. Um, we got to talk about the ending, though. Because the mm. match was good, but the ending was like kind of botched. And I know it shouldn't be a big deal, but it was a specific spot they needed and it went wrong. So it came mm-hmm. off as really awkward. So Goldust was on the apron and he was going to sunset flip Pillman. Mm-hmm. And then Pillman would reverse it and hold his legs, but then get hit by Marlena with uh, a bag with a brick in it on the outside. Yeah, yeah. When Goldust went for the sunset flip, he landed on his head and then they awkwardly ended up all the way in the middle of the ring. So then they had to, and it felt like an eternity, but it's about six seconds of them scooching towards the shimmying over, shimmying (laughs) over just so Pillman could then grab the rope and then get hit. It was very awkward. This this was very much a time where you know editing on the run did not seem like a thing that any like they're all like a deer in headlights anytime something gets botched but but like all in all we've just seen an awesome cage match if anything this should have been the first match because it's kind of the one of those crowd ease the crowd in sort of matches that the WWF used to do so much but in this case it sort of got people down and not in a bad way from the high of the cage match but um perfectly serviceable match i thought like you're not gonna you're not gonna track this down forever like i'd I'd urge people you got to watch the triple h mankind match i'm not going to be telling dude skip the skip the first match skip the new jersey propaganda get straight (laughs) to goldust pillman (laughs) do you know like not that it matters but just out of curiosity because i liked a lot of these matches and i remember them fondly do you know what dave Meltzer rated that cage match i know it doesn't matter this should be good Three stars, I'm going to guess. Two and a half stars. I remember, even as a kid, I remember this match being awesome and it (sighs) still was really good. The crowd was into it. It felt like a main event. I don't know. It doesn't matter. I do not get that. I do not get that. At at the very least, that's a three. (laughs) Surely, yeah, I know. (laughs) But anyway, hey, look. uh, We'll push on to the next one. Now, this is the Godwins versus the Legion of Doom. Yeah, this is five stars. This is, a, this, is, this is a now normally Simon and I had a fair bit of disdain for the Godwins. If you've heard the past year of reliving the war, and justifiably so, I might add. But um, right now, there's a bit of backstory here. LOD have gone and broken Henry Godwin's neck because of a doomsday device that just went wrong. Mm. Now it's that, this was on an episode of Raw. Now it's worked its way into the story. And the Godwins are essentially out for revenge against the LOD. I forgot what Attitude Era Godwins were like because it's very unsettling, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, I forgot the heel Godwins, but I think they work better that way. Very much so. Because they come out with the rebel flag and now it's not, oh, they're friendly hillbillies. Now it's like, no. ooh, they're like they're the a, kind of hillbillies. They're a tad deliverance. Yeah, yeah, exactly. They're the type that neither of us would ever want to run into if we mm. were in America. <laughs> <laughs> oh, ad- I've written it down. Attitude Era Godwin's scary AF. Mm, but yeah. um, uh, the, there is a pre-match promo there. It's a stock standard LOD, shouty yeah. pre-match promo, as was the style at the time. <laughs> 
But um, the best way I've written this down to quote Big E, it's big meaty men slapping meat in this match, and it's is this is a snug match. It's a very very snug match. Yeah, it felt like there was a little bit of real animosity with like, hey, you broke my neck, so. <laughs> but you're also LOD, so we're gonna have to really fight for it. But I like LOD. I still pop for their WWE entrance because they've got the cool music. The mm-hmm. lights, the crowd going crazy, and the Fink's announcement. I love Howard Finkel's announcement of LOD. Because even though they were Legion of Doom, when he would announce them, it was still Road Warrior oh. Animal, Road Warrior Hawk, the Legion, the Legion of, of Doom. Doom. It was so mm. good. So, so good. And the thing, it was brutal, this match. Absolutely brutal. And you can see this is why LOD are regarded as one of the greatest tag teams of all time. They win with a spike pile driver as well, which adds to the um, the neck sort of dramas of Henry Godwin. He takes the pin, and there's it, the real life drama really works its way into this match very well. Yeah, and a nice fake out too. Really good. Like I like the story of this match where it was like, oh no, they went for the doomsday device, but it was broken up, and then they thought we can break your neck with another move. He's a spike <laughs> yeah. pile driver. It was really cool. And I, yeah, because it was like, oh, the Godwins broke up their finisher. They're going to win. I was like, nah, we'll just pile drive him. It was cool. This was New Japan levels of, I'm just going to break your neck. No, I'm going to break your neck. Because <laughs> it was just crazy. I think Very we, stiff we match. mentioned with the LODs earlier matches earlier in 97, it always felt like, oh, this is probably their last good showing. And I was like, nah, maybe this one is. They're still good here. We were saying that at WrestleMania. Like, yeah, we yeah. said that at WrestleMania. Like, I think that's their final hurrah. <laughs> and they keep proving us wrong, which, which is great for us. But yeah, I've written this down. Um, arguably the best Godwins match I've seen so oh, far. Easily. There's no smoking <laughs> guns, so it probably is. <laughs> one interesting moment when they were talking about how the um, Godwins are from Arkansas, and then King rattled off some funny town names in Arkansas and he's like Toad Suck, Pansy, Blue Ball. <laughs> and then Vince was like, oh, are they cities or hamlets? And I rewound it and put the closed caption on. I'm like, did he say, are they hamlets? Hamlets, yeah. What's a hamlet? I looked it up. Vince is getting real geographical. A hamlet is a division that is considered smaller than a town. For example, in New York, a hamlet <laughs> is considered... A municipality with less than 600 people. That's fantastic. Thanks, Vince. Now I know where Hamlet is. It's good. That's so fantastic. (laughs) The best part of that is that Vincent automatically assumes that everyone knows what a Hamlet is. Especially (laughs) your 1997 karate fighter playing kids audience. Like, (laughs) So good. So good. Um, we get to our next segment, which is another fluff piece. Now, this is a kid and some dude trying to win a million dollars. It's and the, the best I, I described the two people, the two um, audience members, or not audience members, the two competition winners is it's basically Reddit, like <laughs> just just a, a kid and a dude that's that's probably highly opinionated. But um, so Sonny and Sable are watching Todd Penningill then dial phone numbers for the next what felt like ten minutes. And it's such a long segment. And Todd Pettingill, he's so loose here. Oh, Todd Pettingill is so good. He saves it. Anyone else, this would have crumbled and been awkward. This is his last hurrah. This is his last WWE pay-per-view until the modern NXT in your houses. Mm. Um, He is so good here. So basically the setup is 
There's a coffin with a million dollars. There's a board with a hundred keys on it. Keys, yeah. Yep. So these two guys have a key each, but there's also going to be three contestants at home who have a key. But those contestants at home are going to be called on the phone live. The first two people don't answer. And Todd has to ad-lib his way out of this <laughs> and make fun of the people at home. He has to do boob jokes with Sable because she she's holding the paper with all the phone numbers. And yep. he's like, oh, hold it a little bit lower. Just like he's, going he's for it. He's dialing the numbers live, like to the point where it's like beep, beep. Beep. <laughs> like he's doing that and the best part too is when he gets through the first call it's like are you watching summer slams like no my cable provider doesn't have <laughs> it's just like and, oh, it's so awful so yeah, yeah. awful and then- however one thing though that does that does um save this is the amount of fake laughter from vince <laughs> you know that's a fake laughter but his face was red and he was just breaking every pencil <laughs> on that desk <laughs> thank god for todd pennegill and also shout out to sunny who is great in the segment as well and mm-hmm. when you see sable and sunny having to do the same segment they both get a turn holding the numbers for todd and like playing around with the contestant sunny is amazing she has personality. She's like playing along. Sable compared to Sunny in that sense. No, couldn't compete. It's but chalk and cheese. We know how history turned out. Sable mm. wins. You see, it's all about you need to hitch your bandwagon to that Mark Merrow gravy <laughs> train. That's what you need to do. And then hitch an <laughs> even bigger wagon to Brock Lesnar. Look, Sable's done all right. We can't, <laughs> can't fold She's done there. very well. Um, as I said here, this is an awful, awful segment. And I do feel bad for the kid and the dude because they just have to sit there, stand there while all this is happening. But after that awful segment, it what is about back to when Summer Sable Slam. hugs the 13 year old kid, though? <laughs> gets a huge pop from the crowd. And I think, um, Todd, Todd said, Pettingill. Yeah, he's like, you didn't win a million dollars, but when you grow up, you'll realize that was worth more. Like, yeah. And King on commentary says that itself is worth a million dollars. So shout out to Todd Pettingill, who, let's face it, when we started this podcast, we didn't think he was going to be as good as we thought. He's way mm. better than I remembered. And what a great one-year run he's had of watching him. Yeah, it certainly has been. He's he's clearly he does a little bit more than Mean Gene does too. Like he's got a little bit more personality, which is quite a big feat to say. Um, we then see a little recap of what's happened on Raw, and I'll tell you what: people that might have been really, you know, crapping on WWE for the use of dog food and angles with Roman Reigns <laughs> and Baron Corbin, mate, they've been doing it since two since nineteen ninety seven. Yeah, we see. So Bulldog and Shamrock are having an arm wrestling match. Bulldog cheats and then he gets dog food and pours it all over Ken Shamrock. You know what this is, though? This is the first real pay-per-view of the Vince Russo era. Mm -hmm. We've had a cage match to open the show. We've had a match where the loser has to wear a dress. We've now got a match where the loser gets dog food poured on them. We are (laughs) in that stipulation era. And you know what? It's a fun show because of it. But yeah, we got the dog food now. Yeah, this one's used in moderation. It's not dog food on a pole, which then the loser has to eat wearing a dress, <laughs> yeah. which is what would be a staple of late 2000s WCW. Yeah, we'll, but, we'll get to that. <laughs> but it's Bulldog versus Ken Shamrock. And if Bulldog loses, he has to eat the dog food. This is the first time we see Ken Shamrock sort of 
mold into that attitude era Shamrock that we know. He's got the classic music. Mm. He looks more like he's he's got the mannerisms a little bit. He's but, not wearing the bathrobe from the past yes. few months. Yeah. And what I found interesting was Vince and JR off the bat sort of mentioned Shamrock's greenness. Like he's more of an MMA guy. He did this thing called Ultimate Fighting Championship. So he's getting used to wrestling. So they're covering it up. But I gotta say, like he did pretty damn well. Like it's really good back and forth. I'm sure that Bulldog was doing a lot of the heavy lifting, but Shamrock steps it up and you can sort of see why like a year later he becomes king of the ring. Spoiler what? alert. Sorry. <laughs> damn it. <laughs> The funny thing about Shamrock is, though, like, we all think, oh, man, he was a martial artist, and he adapted pretty well to wrestling. He was a pro wrestler first. He just had a different name, like, Mm -hmm. in the early 90s. But they don't talk about it. Not that he was, like, some big-time wrestler. Yeah, it blew my mind when I found that out, too. He used, like, what his name used to be. He was, like, just anyway. But, yeah, he was a pro wrestler. And then didn't have a lot of success. Then did UFC, then came back to it. He's just done everything, basically. One thing I noticed about his style, like it was something I noticed watching old episodes of Raw and watching these pay-per-views. Ken Shamrock's matches, he does a lot of, okay, I'm going to throw you into the ropes and then I'll do a suplex. I'll throw you into the ropes, then I'll do a Hurricane Rana. As I was typing my notes, I wrote Ken Shamrock, Shaw loves Irish whips. And then I was like, oh my God, this was all on purpose. Shamrock, (laughs) Shamrock, Irish whips. This is... He's so smart. This was part of the style and the character, and I never noticed it. So I go. never, I would not have picked up on that. <laughs> it's taken like, me 34 years. I just sort of pictured like it's like when you sort of like first learn how to play revenge, like all you know how to do is do Irish whips and then a punch. No, <laughs> part of the gimmick, Irish the gimmick. whips, Ken Shamrock. Perfect. <laughs> like I said, though, this is a pretty good back and forth. Shamrock definitely holds up his own. Um, he, he, he holds his own in this match. And it's only when the Bulldog gets dog food involved here, it completely turns the tide and Shamrock just absolutely snaps. So a DQ gives Bulldog the win. It's almost, we should really focus more on the post-match compared to the actual match because Shamrock completely snaps. He puts Bulldog in a sleeper and just, it's the age-old Vince Russo. Everyone from the back comes out, refs, stooges, they all try to pull Shamrock off. It's fantastic. Yeah, to me, give the match whatever you want. The match was okay. One star, three stars, five stars, who cares? This ending segment was 10 out of 10. Like, this was the, is this the first time we've seen Ken Shamrock snap? This would Mm -hmm. become part of his gimmick and so many matches. Oh, no, it was a DQ or, oh, no, they screwed Shamrock and he would just lose his mind when he did this. I don't think the crowd expected it. Nobody knew how it would go. All the officials come out, the referees, the Stooges. We see Briscoe, we see Patterson. When Shamrock suplexes that first referee, because he suplexes like 10 guys here. Everyone, yeah. It's the Suplex City. just gets louder and louder. And yeah, it is the mold we, we would see later for guys like Brock Lesnar. And, you know, when they brawl, oh my God, the officials. Ken Shamrock did it perfectly here. And yeah, every time he would like fire up and like yell, the crowd would lose it. Great segment. 
Did you notice too, and being a staunch WWF attitude on PlayStation Play, you probably would have picked this up. Did you notice this is probably one of the first times he does the, get out of my way. Yes, I noticed that too. Get out of my way. I'm like, oh my God, that's the line from Attitude. Um, the, only, the only criticism I have of this segment, so after he suplexed everyone, he's in the ring, I'm like, oh my God, Ken Shamrock is, you know, he's in his zone. They didn't hit his music. How big hmm. would the pop have been if when he like yelled that last time they hit his music? Anyway. Because after he yells it, he gets the massive pop. It's Huge. as if it's it's on par with, you know, in the day, like, you know, and that's the bottom line, because don't call it's it's mega. It is mega. This is this is Shamrock's coming out party, I felt like. And I completely forgot about it because I always it was only when we watched his early matches, I always thought Ken Shamrock came out of the box like we saw him in nineteen ninety eight. Yeah, yeah, exactly. There was a bit of a, yeah, like he didn't have the music. He didn't snap yet. He didn't have the ankle lock. Like it all led yeah. and came together by, yeah. He, late he, he was all like, even in, in, in Canadian standard, he's still an MMA fighter. Like he's still like, oh, I'm going to do takedowns and this and this. Whereas this, I love how the narrative is MMA fighters, nut chops. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. the subtext. Uh, we get to our next segment, which is a backstage bit with HBK and Todd Penningill. HBK claims that he'll be very, very impartial here. He's not going to let personal feelings implicate the match. Again, I said it before. I'm going to say it again. Todd Pettingill, really loose. <laughs> he's, he's good here, though. He knew he was about to pass the torch, though. So I think he went out, like, just having fun on this show. Yeah, yeah. And we're, and we're all better for it. That's all I got to say. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, interesting, though. We see Shawn Michaels here in a referee shirt with the sleeves cut off. And I thought, oh, yeah, that's always funny. Shawn Michaels has, like, a referee attire. Even in some of the video games, it's like, Shawn yep. Michaels referee outfit. We don't have it the fully formed version. So when he came out, I thought, oh, no, he wore pants here. Later, we would get, you know, full Shawn Michaels, cut off sleeve and booty shorts when he's a referee. Yep. Like, that is yep. his referee attire. And then I thought about it. Has any wrestler been a special referee more than Shawn Michaels? That's actually a good question. Um, I, I found three articles about his history as a special. As a, oh, that's yeah. brilliant. That's so fantastic. Good. So, because you're right, he spent more time because he was always in a main event, even if he wasn't there, he was the ref. Sure, yeah. SummerSlam 97, uh, two episodes of Raw in 99, no, three episodes. And then, of course, the big one, the debut the episode Smackdown. of SmackDown, exactly, where yeah. he screws The Rock. And then the other big one, Triple H and The Rock, Judgment Day. He mm -hmm. was the ref for the Iron Man match. And then uh, Elimination Chamber in, you know, later in 2005. And uh, I couldn't believe that there's about 13 <laughs> Shawn Michaels special referee matches. And let's and we'll, not we'll, forget, yeah. he's Mr. WrestleMania as a wrestler. He's also Mr. WrestleMania as a referee. Him refereeing Triple H and The Undertaker, he almost steals the show with his <laughs> oh overacting and like, oh my God, I'm the torn love interest who doesn't know which side to pick. Like, it's so good. It does say something that you can actually do a top 10 Shawn Michaels special guest <laughs> referee list. You can actually do that. That's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> um, we, get to our, we get to our next match and it's back, no, next segment. It's back to the desk. It's Jay and Vincent King. That or a wrap up of what we've just seen. Vince mentions a new commissioner that's going to be on Raw tomorrow. How is he going to deal with Ken Shamrock? So that one's a little bit interesting. Was that Sergeant Slaughter that became the. Yeah. The, yeah we're getting yeah. into the Slaughter era because I remember DX messing with him. That was like right. the first 
sort of big DX thing. It'd also be the first time we see Slaughter in a fair while too, so that'd be pretty yeah. cool to sort of say. Um, we get to our next uh, match, which is um, the it's Los Barricas versus DOA. It's our, it's our first look at the infamous Gang Wars of 1997, and it's interesting that basically from the video package, there is one person that's responsible for all of the faction warfare for Rook mm. by kicking Crush and Savia Vega out of the nation. Which, which is quite hilarious because I love how basically Vince sees gangs as if they were in West Side Story. Like everyone dresses the same. Yeah. They're all, well, not only, not only do they dress the same, but there was a great promo clip in the package of Crush trying to sound tough. And it's like, these are my brothers in DOA. We ride together and we live together. And yeah. I'm like, do you? Like it's the real world or something? And the best part too is I love that it just turns out like, you know, like, oh, you've just been kicked out of, you know, the nation of domination. Oh, well, better start a faction. <laughs> better start a new gang. <laughs> better call my brother Chains. And and I was starting to think this is another like Mandela effect. We can't remember the history properly. I always thought in story Chains was Crush's brother. Is that the mm. case or no? Um, No, I don't think that was the case. They just because looked we... the same. Yeah. Because there's, there's, it's only um, Skull and Eight Ball or whatever the hell the Harris Twins were called um, that, are, that are the brothers. Because we've, because the thing is like, oh, actually, no, you're right. Because Crush does mention, you know, he turns to like family and his brothers and stuff like that. Or does he mean that in like, you know, like the the bro kind of way? Yeah, maybe. And It's very confusing. We live together, not like life partners, just as a gang. <laughs> just know? as a gang. You know what yeah, gangs fair. do. <laughs> But um, look, it's it's such a strange little thing too. So, like I said, uh, Los Barricas come out like something out of West Side Story. DLA come out looking like The Undertaker in 02, but move like Chuck Palumbo in 05. <laughs> it's so funny how they've tried the biker gimmick who rides his bike to the ring so many times. It only worked once, and even then, some people didn't like it, you know? It's crazy that The Undertaker literally just was like, what if I do DOA, but it might be better? That's all he did, and it worked. It's, it, it, do you know what's missing there? Two things are missing. The key ingredients, what we've learned from DOA, Chuck Palumbo doing it, and The Undertaker doing it. The key ingredients are Mark Calloway and Limp Biscuit. Yeah, and Limp Biscuit. Because <laughs> to be honest, I don't care what anyone says, Limp Biscuit rolling way better than American Badass by Keith yeah. Like It's way better. That, that sealed it. When he started using um, Limp Biscuit to me as a kid, I was like, okay, I'm on board with mm. this. Also, what's funny, I didn't think about it till now, Chains, who was Brian Lee, played the fake Undertaker, the fake Undertaker. at SummerSlam 94, and then the American Badass, he then stole his gimmick. So, you yeah, know, it was fun. We could have had a receipt. Chains versus Chains at... 2000 SummerSlam or whatever. Or what would have been good as a, as a, like a redo of SummerSlam 94, SummerSlam 2004, because Taker is still American bad. Oh, no, he goes back to being goes back. Dead Man be Undertaker. SummerSlam 2002 or whatever. Yeah, he if we had Taker versus Taker, but it's like... <laughs> Chains, just in his COA outfit. Anyway, we're obviously <laughs> crapping on about everything aside from the match because this match was terrible. And it's I'm an just going to be honest. I zoned out and missed the whole thing. Like I was sitting so, there and then the, the uh, what's it called? The nation, the nation of domination came out. came out. And then I was like, Oh, okay. What's happening here? 
Can I? Can I? I'll quickly point out before we very quickly bruise past this match. Did you notice at the start during the entrances? Like I said, we're still at the entrance part because this is the only <laughs> interesting part of the match. JR talking about those nights out drinking and how we'd get into a brawl. The, the weird thing, because when DOA are coming out, JR's like, we're all been to a big, to a big city bar and you have co- a couple of two drinks, one, two fight, and then a fight starts out. And that's what that sort of guys these are. And you're like, you got into bar fights, JR? JR <laughs> was secretly part of the DOA. Like, imagine <laughs> yeah. that. He was revealed as the higher power. <laughs> so strange. So strange. But I'll tell you, um, JR is doing his absolute best this match to try and sell the gang warfare. I completely forgot that Nation of Domination Ahmed Johnson existed. Um, As we said, he could could have been Ahmed The Rock Johnson before Dwayne did it. (laughs) And to give you an idea, the only thing I can remember, the only note that I've mainly got during this match is there are a lot of chin locks. Yeah. For for an eight-man tag, there sure was a lot of stalling. You know, there should be more action. Not good. This definitely wasn't the Canadian Stampede match. No, no, you know, this is very much, yeah, if Canadian Stampede's main event set the bar, this is very much the other end of the pool. Yeah. But um, look, look, Chains then punches Ahmed, who's standing on the outside. Um, Ahmed does the worst Pearl River plunge in history. I thought he was doing a pile drive until um, <laughs> JR says, oh, I was a Pearl River plunge. I'm like, that doesn't look like a Pearl River plunge to me. Yeah, not a lot of rotation on that one. Yeah, uh, and then the best part is Los Barricas after the win just sort of go, right, see you guys, and <laughs> head to the back. Yeah, and then Nation of Domination start brawling with the other guys. The only note I had on the brawl part was all three Crush can't teams- drive a motorbike around the ring. <laughs> yeah, he get, kind of gets stuck. <laughs> but all three of these teams are heels. Why would I care about any of this? Awful. It is absolutely awful stuff. Do you reckon that in the back of Vince's mind, he's like... We could have Los Barricas and DOA and the Nation and the Heart Foundation. And someone went, whoa, 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 whoa. No. No. <laughs> We're not getting involved in this. That is basically what they were doing. The <laughs> so- white American guys, the white Canadian guys, the black group, and the Hispanic group. And the Hispanic group. It's just... And stereotypical Hispanic group. Like, I love the fact that they, they might as well have been played out with a mariachi band. But... Um, <laughs> I know. All right, let's let's quickly move on from that one because that's an awful, awful match. Definitely, if you go to rewatch this, just hit next match, skip, mm. skip forward. Um, seemed like it seemed like that match went for twenty minutes too. Like it just dragged. Yeah, but, it was um, not good. To be fair, it actually only went for. I'm trying to find a number. Nine minutes, but it felt oh my like God. double that. Yeah, that's the worst. Yeah, but anyway, we'll push up. Um, the next one we get to a video package which hypes up Austin versus Owen Hart, and the phrase "I can beat Stone Cold Steve Austin" is said about fifty times in the package, which is very cool. Another stipulation match: Austin will kiss Owen's ass if he loses. Remember that. That is the stipulation. Mm. Uh, did Did you find it amusing that really green Michael Cole? Yeah, I did, and I thought, here we go. Like, and, you know, I like Michael Cole for the most part, but there are just obviously here in this era, he was so green, and we're coming off the back of, you know, Pettingill mania, and Mm. just knowing this is Todd's last show, just seeing Todd trying to interview Austin backstage, you know, I just thought, sorry, Michael, I was like, sorry, Cole, you are not. On Todd's level yet. Yeah, like, yeah. This is the sad transition because we saw the last of Pettingill and the first of Cole here, and they're not on the same level yet. 
No, there's not even a Venn diagram overlap. Or if there is, it's a very slit. It's pixel-like in terms of how much there is an overlap. But um, uh, it's a pretty cool entrance from um the back to the ring, though, for Austin. I thought mm. it was pretty cool. Yeah, I really like that. WWE in this era would do that quite a bit in different ways. But you'd see the guy backstage, and then he would walk out to the ring. It's very, very, very cool. Also, should point out to Austin's not still a fan favorite officially. Like the crowd cheers him, but the commentary team still treat him as like you know he's a bad man. He's you know we don't know why he gets so much support, but he does. But he's a bad dude. They've got to stop that. I thought in this match, this is where Austin was one hundred percent a face. Because they weren't just chanting Austin. There were a lot of kids and it was a huge chant. They were saying, let's go Austin. Like, you yeah. can't get more face than that. Like, that's it. Seal the deal now. Correct. And it's a nice little brawl to start. And some very cool wrestling moves from Austin too. Like, including the really cool little Greco-Roman arm sort of thing where he, like, throws him in the air and then slams him down. Even the rest holds are really great in this match. And... There's so many good little moves. Austin reverses Hurricane Runners into power bombs. Mm-hmm. It's so sad that literally we see, like, you know, it's a tale of two halves. Like, Austin was such a great technical wrestler, and we really demonstrated that here. Um, and what's interesting, too, is the, the commentary team constantly mentioned Owen working Austin's neck. I thought that, too. There was one point when um, Owen hits a German suplex on Austin, and I thought, JR cursed him. He goes, the real story is Austin's neck. And I'm like, oh, no, <laughs> we know what Isn't happens. It? Another bit to another quote from JR, Owen has a bullseye on Austin's neck. Uh, yeah, and I'm sure the pile driver was going to be part of that, but just it's like, oh, no. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah it, it's fiction it's, became like, fact. But before we talk about the pile driver, obviously, that changed everything, did, could you remember Austin being this good of a wrestler? I feel like I've been trying to say that throughout this podcast. Yeah. Austin was damn good. And I know we've had to tell, you know, regular guest mm. uh, Owen Digital Beard because he didn't grow up in this era. I've had to tell him so many times, if you don't know Austin pre-injury, like you can't say whether you think he's a good wrestler or not. Austin was awesome. He was awesome post-injury too. But in terms of his technical wrestling, let's think about two of the best matches we've seen doing this show. His match with Brett, at um, Survivor Series 96, the match with Brett at WrestleMania 13. WrestleMania. And the King of the Ring match with Shawn Michaels. Shawn Michaels, yeah. Austin was up there with Brett and Shawn. And this match with Owen, he hangs with Owen in the, you know, like the faster paced style. We missed out on so many good things with Austin. Mm. We still got good things, but yeah. We still got good things, but like, it's amazing. He probably could have kept wrestling past 2003 yeah. if um, that didn't happen. But look, uh, sliding door moments, eh? And this is where we get to the pile driver that changed everything. So uh, if you haven't seen it, um, Owen sets him up for like a tombstone pile driver, but instead of dropping to the knees, he sort of sits down. Austin's neck pretty much bounces off the canvas and he is done. He's out. It's lights out there. And Owen knows this. The minute you can see it happen, you can see Owen's face like, oh, oh, yeah. this isn't good. It is not good. It's a moment we've seen replayed in countless documentaries and hype videos. One thing that I couldn't remember, I haven't seen this match in a long time, but watching it in real time and just in real time, watching yeah. it in full, it wasn't as long as I thought. When you watch the video packages, and obviously for Austin, it would have felt like a lifetime, but when you watch it told, they make it feel like, oh my God, it was five minutes, it was 10 minutes, it was so awkward. And it, it was only 
it was a lot shorter than I expected. Not because, that, that it really it, matters, but yeah. But you're right because when it when Austin eventually got a roll up and it's a horrible roll up, but you know when you've just been paralyzed from the neck down, the mere fact that you could even try to um, do a roll up is you know something you could take your hat off. But the thing that really sort of stood out to me was that like when that happened, I was like, oh. Did, has it already happened? Isn't there more padding? I could have sworn yeah. Owen padded for more. Yeah, that's what I thought too. And one thing as well, like this is a great match. I really think people should go back and watch this match just to see how actually good it was. Mm. If that didn't happen, if that, you know, the injury didn't happen, would this was this match on its way to being, to being as a, good a as Brett and Austin or, you know, Austin and anyone? This felt like it was a classic until that moment, I reckon better. I honestly reckon better. And I was, I really, was still really good. I, I've often been a big proponent that Owen Hart was a better wrestler than, um, than Bret Hart. It's just that because he's, you know, Bret's little brother that he, uh, he often gets overlooked. But yeah, this, this match is fantastic. It often, it will always get overlooked because of that pile driver and the ramifications. But the mere fact that Austin's able to lift the belt above his head, because did you see how mm. Earl Hebner gets the belt and sort of puts it in the air? Yeah, before Austin finally does it, and you can hear Vince. Vince is just like, "Uh oh, this is not good." Yeah, and it's very tense with the commentary too. They don't know how to approach this. You know, they don't want to say one way or or the other. Like, oh, he's injured his neck. Like, yeah. Yeah. To yeah. be fair, the crowd still pops for the roll up, even though it oh, yeah. clearly wasn't a real roll up. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Still cheer. What one interesting thing? Not that it. It doesn't really matter, and you don't want to think too much about it. But did you know five years before this happened, and I think it's almost five years to the date or something like that. It's like some weird coincidence. But when Austin was wrestling in Japan, he did the exact same pile driver to Masahiro Chono and broke his and neck. And broke Chono's neck, oh, didn't he? It's yeah. really weird. The same weird sit-out pile driver that no yeah. one ever does. Yeah. It's it's an odd one there too. I believe Austin has an interesting account of that in his book, the Owen Pile Driver. But um, um, I think it was something along the lines of like he, he he trusted Owen to do it, and which is why there was quite a bit of up until Owen says Owen and Austin never actually reconciled after this. Bret Hart's sort of um, even thrown his two bob in where he basically said, you know, Owen never called Austin afterwards to check how he was going. Mm. Uh, it's weird, but yeah, look, it was a. Um, an interesting match is definitely one that changed the the course of sort of um, the WWE uh, WWF at the time. But we'll we'll push on to our main event. We see a recap of what's led to Austin, not Austin, what's led to Brett versus Undertaker, mm. and it's a hell of a complex story. There's so many layers <laughs> to this. It's so good. Do you want to try and recap it? So essentially, so what is it? So Bret Hart has gone crazy and he thinks he doesn't get respected by the American wrestling fans. But he mm-hmm. also, and again, this is interesting, we've discussed this before, he thinks Vince McMahon and the WWE is trying to screw him. Yep. So he's gone <laughs> crazy and he's paranoid that he's going to get screwed, which he would be. Yep. Undertaker is the WWE champ, but he's now dealing with Paul Bearer, telling him that his dead brother is actually alive and he tried blackmailing him so now he might get his younger brother to come out and kill him or whatever. 
the dead brother that um, Undertaker was responsible for killing. For killing. He killed him, exactly. So <laughs> Kane yeah. is alive. And Shawn Michaels had to give up the world title because he was injured. And now he, you know, the main guy that he didn't like is Bret Hart. Bret Hart's said some disparaging things about him. Sean's now in the position where he now has to be the referee for this match. It's a very complex story. So, so complicated. But um, what, what's pretty cool is Bret Hart, such a heel. He comes out, makes the crowd sit through the Canadian national anthem, which I thought was a nice little touch. It was good. Um, Sh- Sean Michaels gets his full entrance. <laughs> a, a nice touch with that is um, the... <laughs> The commentary team going, oh, great. Now Earl Hebner is going to want pyro. Yeah, yeah. We've never seen a referee with pyro before. Yeah, But Shawn Michaels, I think, revolutionized the special ref. It wasn't like, oh, now special ref is, you know, Big John Stud. Like, he was like, nah, I'm going to do my full gimmick, you know? Yeah. And he did all the ref moves perfectly, too. So, um, and then Undertaker, of course, does his little thing where he comes out. Does the this is his new raise the lights thing, um, which he only introduced probably about a couple of pay-per-views ago. Yeah, instead of like raising the lights slowly on the corner, he just shoots his arms out like it's a pyro burst. So yeah. good. I think I prefer it to the slow ones. Kind of cool. Big pop, big pop as well. Yeah. Once those lights come up, mm. it's also, like when you see a ro- yeah. I was going to say the Bret Hart promo that they use in this package. It's when they were in Canada. And it's a kind of a famous, it's one of Brett's best promos where he says, thank you for letting me be your hero in Canada. And the crowd's going crazy. And it's like, mm. this is a country that still has health care for its citizens. And we don't <laughs> go around shooting each other. And it's such like, he's not wrong. He's not wrong. Yeah, oh. he ain't wrong. He ain't wrong. But, uh, <laughs> so we, we then get, um, the best part is, I've written the first thing I've written down is HBK doesn't subscribe to the seen not heard school of refereeing. <laughs> he's all into it. Like he's, he's very so serious as a ref, checking them for weapons, you know, really getting in their face in a submission. So, you know, do you give up and looking at the timekeeper? It was good. Did you happen to notice too that when they, they mentioned, they give an, uh, an update on Austin and they mentioned that he's been taken to a hospital? Not a medical facility. <laughs> yeah, Vince hadn't gotten on the medical facility only rule just yet. They kept saying that he might have a stinger. They didn't want to say his neck could be broken. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Which you can kind of understand there. Um, now, it's a pretty slow and plodding match. It's mainly the theatrics that sort of make it up for it. But um, Brett is very vicious here. It's a pretty sort of, it's it's this animal sort of side of Brett. Ever since he became a heel, he's sort of way more aggressive. But um. Uh, Paul Bearer also comes out and Taker just knocks him clean out, which is great. Yeah, there was not a lot of Paul Bearer and JR calls him that hideous, lousy human being. And then, (laughs) But then on the flip side of that, we get Owen and Pillman coming out. There was a great spot here where Undertaker knows they're there and he does that Undertaker thing where he backflips over the top rope. Yeah. In one fell swoop, he backflips over the rope, turns around, and just starts clotheslining <laughs> Owen film. It's good. Uh, there's another cool bit. Um, I, one of my favorite things is the Bret Hart figure four leg, uh, figure four lead lock on the rig post. It's such a great spot, but it also leads to one of the greatest lines where HBK and 
and um, Brett are getting fully into each other here. And then HBK does the pull out the point the ref thing. And then he <laughs> says, I am the law. I am the law. <laughs> was, they did it a couple of times. There was one time when they were doing it on the outside of the ring because Sean was like, get it back in the ring. They were mm. yelling at each other. And then I think a fan in the crowd heckled both of them. He mm. must have said something that was really offensive because they both dropped their argument and both turned to the fan and said, <laughs> you shut up or whatever they said. It was good. I've also written down to you when you talk about, um, uh, when you talk about like the fact that Taker manages to take out um, Paul Bearer and, and Pillman and Owen, I've just put Taker very big with eliminating distractions. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Undertaker was like, nah, I'll get rid of all of them. This match, um, I remember it being really good and it was very good, but kind of what you said about it being plotting, I thought was bred on offense too much here. Like not that. I think so. It was just weird because it's the Undertaker, and you're like, Brett is beating the crap out of him. It was kind of weird. And that's what I mean. Like it's mainly Brett and HBK that you're worried about. Undertaker's a third wheel here, if anyone, if I've ever seen one. And yeah, and uh, although there's a there's a cool little um, there's Bret Hart does the flying elbow that is off the top, gives the double bird to the crowd, does that, Mm. but. One cool thing is, um, did you notice that choke slam that Taker does from the apron into the ring? That was really cool because was it at the last pay per view against Vader? He did like a choke slam off the top rope. So mm-hmm. now we've seen him do it from the outside in. Like Undertaker's really sort of how DDP would revolutionize where he's going to do the diamond cutter from. Undertaker was having fun with the choke slam here. That was really, really cool. There were a few Very good, good near, fall, near falls in the match too. One of the choke slams and Shawn Michaels is distracted, got a huge uh, pop when he kicked out. Taker even gets in the sharpshooter as well and breaks the move. And it's the first time, well, they keep saying it's the first time that someone's broken the sharpshooter. Yeah, I don't know if that's true, but okay, they said it. It was cool. Do you reckon when they say breaks out of it that they actually just actually bang, like just just you know like because everyone's got to the ropes or something yeah he kicked but he literally like yeah so that could be one of those things but yeah brett is just completely stunned then we get that that ring post sharpshooter which is pretty cool i remember the figure four around the post i don't remember him ever doing the sharpshooter around the post it's kind of cool it was very cool very cool and then we get to our ending because brett brings in a chair clocks the undertaker with it and then sean you know being the the great ref that he is, does the, you know, like, hey, what's this chair doing in here? <laughs> you know, that well, old referee. Although at first he goes for the count and mm. Taker kicks out. It is a huge pop for that kick out though. Yeah, that's true. That's yeah. true. I- and then then Sean sees the chair and he looks at it and does the big miming to the crowd like, hey, what's this chair doing here? This ending though is perfectly timed and genius. So Sean has the chair. He goes up to Brett and he says, hey, you know, did you hit Undertaker with this chair? While they're arguing, the Undertaker is slowly getting to his feet. Because he's just been knocked out by the chair. Knocked out by the chair. He's slowly getting up behind Brett. Sean and Brett are arguing. Sean's like, you know, I've got the chair and I'm the ref. Brett's all like, you know, count freaking sake. You know, like you're the ref. Do your job. Do your damn job. And then Brett reels back. Bits on Sean. Sean is with, so uh, with, 
with accuracy, like straight in Sean's face. It's a hell of a loogie. There's a loogie <laughs> hanging on Sean's face up until the end now. Sean then reels back, goes to hit Brett, but oh no, Undertaker's up to his feet. Brett ducks it and Sean clubs the him. hell out of the Undertaker. And then we didn't mention the stip for this match. If Brett loses, Brett said he would never wrestle in America again. And Sean said, if I don't call this down the line, I'll never wrestle in America again. So Hmm. now Sean has knocked out the Undertaker. Brett's covered him. You said you were going to call it down the line. And Sean is staring in Brett's face, reluctantly counts to three and storms off. The ending is five stars. The best part about it is the minute he hits The Undertaker, he knows he's just like, I yeah. painted myself into a corner here. I'm screwed. It's so good. And that's it is Shawn, so good. Shawn Michaels in this era keeps getting himself into bad situations. Like, that's the story. Like, oh, no, now I'm screwed. And the best part is, too, Brett's like, they've just got, like, eye contact, like, the most piercing, like, face-off as Sean's doing the count. It's also the most aggressive three count you'll <laughs> ever see. It really is. And you know what? If people haven't seen it, you got to watch the Bret Hart doco Wrestling with Shadows. It covers this whole period, and you get to see, like, the behind-the-scenes stuff. I still remember the scene about SummerSlam 97 where Bruce Pritchard is explaining the ending, like, oh, then, you know, you'll duck and do this. And you see that footage of them in the, like, the production or, mm. like, the gorilla position of, like, oh, Bruce Pritchard reacting to the ending. It's very, very good. This ending is so good. Such a phenomenal uh, sort of thing. It's also what I've written down, a nitro ending, because the crowd just pelts the ring <laughs> yeah. with garbage. Yeah. The Heart Foundation came out to celebrate, and we see the birth of the NW, the WCW NWO Revenge Taunt. Remember how Brett just did, like, the the, the hands out to the side, like, what <laughs> happened here? Yeah, kind yeah, of thing. Yeah. <laughs> Which, for some reason, was his default taunt in... Um, <laughs> In WCW NWO Revenge. Yeah. But no, what... like like you said, flawless. And the best part is too, because because ta- Sean's hightailed it to the back. He's PO'd. Taker, because the last thing he remembers is Sean Michaels smacking him with a chair, gets out of the ring and chases down. Well, he doesn't chase him down, but he goes to like, you know. So this sets up bad blood next month. It's yeah. so well done. We're on a roll here. I love how all these stories connected. Say what you want about Vince Russo or whatever, whatever cliched jokes. Man, this era had some really good, interesting storytelling. And it all connects. And also, Bret Hart here breaks Hulk Hogan's record and becomes the first five-time WWE champion. Pretty cool. Yeah, five-time champion there. Um, this was actually a good... This was the time before, like, you know, we're into the 12-time reigns and 15-time reigns where, like, you know, like, because at this point in time, like until Vengeance two thousand and two, it was because because um, Hulk would then equal the record when he won the WWE title again in two thousand and five. No, not sorry, in two thousand two. Remember? Yeah, he would become a five time champ as well. He'd become a five time champ again, equaling with Brett. Austin was also a five time champ, and then Rock was the only guy that got six titles. Yeah, which which kind of at at that point in time, like that's sort of where it still sort of meant something. But that which felt is, right. Rock is the guy who should have that um, record, and then it was yeah. like now every guy's you know twelve time, ten time. Yeah, exactly. So, which, which is still pretty cool. But like all in all, a very very solid paper there. Um, what are your final thoughts on this one, Simon? 
Look, maybe it wasn't as good as I remembered overall, but the big moments, I'm glad the two matches I remembered as a kid were still good. The cage match and the main event. And especially the replay right at the end of the show when they show the chair shot uh, pinfall Mm -hmm. from the other um, camera angle where it's the close-up of Brett and Sean's uh, face-off for the count. Very, very good. You see the loogie on Sean's face and you see like how (laughs) angry he is and he has to reluctantly count to three and Brett's like, you better count it. It's really good. I gotta, I gotta agree with you there on all counts with the, like the two matches that stood out to me was the, the cage match and the main events. And the, the other thing that adds, I actually reckon this is better than I remembered because I didn't remember Bulldog and Ken Shamrock being this good. Yeah, that was good. It was, it was a really good match. And the, I forgot because you always remember the broken neck. You just forget about how good the match was leading up to it, which is a damn shame. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's the other thing we, you know, I know we dwell on the the broken neck part, but that match is fantastic. For the 15, 16 minutes it goes before that happens, it's as good as anything you're going to see. Man, hell yeah. Well, we always like to give an MVP. Who do you reckon the MVP of the show is? Oh, referee Shawn Michaels. He's so <laughs> good. Like, that's... That's as good as you get. He's Mr. Special Referee and Mr. WrestleMania. <laughs> I got to I gotta go with The Undertaker on this one, mainly because there's so many little things that he does that make me pop, like the old school, uh, except at this point in time, what's it called? Is, they don't Nothing. have a name for old school yet. Yeah. <laughs> Off the top rope. <laughs> like, that's mm. it. Yeah. But, but just because, like, for a third wheel in a main event, he's the pretty much the best third wheel you'll ever get because everything intertwines back to him, like, like the Kane storyline, him decking um, the Heart Foundation, like everything is just like, even though it's all Sean and Brett, you take Taker out of it and you don't get the drama that you did in that main event. Yeah, I can see it. And, and honestly, shout out to The Undertaker selling in this match. Normally he wouldn't do that. He has to sell throughout this and like Brett Hart beats him up. They all did great in the main event. Brett Hart, also born. Hmm. I, I Googled him. I know we talk about ages a lot. He was 40 and he was basically in his prime. Like, this is the last hurrah, but he was still good. And we should also point out too, like, this is the end of Taker's run, like, as in his run as champion. And he doesn't get the belt for another two years. Yeah, wow. Which is pretty crazy when you think about it. And three different gimmicks too. So he's had the original zombie dead man in 91. 97 as this weird hybrid sort of new age, new generation dead man. Mm. Then his third reign is um, Ministry of Darkness dead man until he finally gets the um, the American badass reign where he defeats Hulk Hogan. Yeah, I can't wait for Ministry Undertaker. Oh, that's going to be really good. That's mm. going to be fantastic. But uh, hey, look, that is do yourself a favor. Check out SummerSlam 1997, a very, very cool pay-per-view. Um, speaking of pay-per-views, the next one on our roster is Road Wild 1997, the second of the wild pay-per-views because last <laughs> year was Hogwarts. Yeah, before Harley Davidson laid the smackdown on WCW. <laughs> But yeah, we're going to be joined by uh, the third man himself, Owen Jones. Our mate, Digital Beard, will jump on board because I think he's he's had his first birthday by the time this pay-per-view <laughs> comes around. Yeah. Uh, look, I kind of know what happens on this pay-per-view and it's a bit of a downer, which is a shame, but, uh, you know, because I think we mentioned between Bash at the Beach and Road while Luke, Lex Luger gets his big moment. 
and becomes the world champion on Nitro. But can you remember Lex Luger as champion for long? No. Hell no. He wrestles no. Hulk Hogan at Road Wild. <laughs> Which is a bit of a shame. But look, we'll yeah. definitely relive that one. And this has been Reliving the War. Remember, if you want to catch up on the entire back catalog, you can do so. Grey Wolf ENT on all the socials. If you want to follow me and Simon, you can do so. Best to check out the Grey Wolf socials. Grey Wolf have also got a whole bunch of other cool podcasts on there as well. They've got an NFL pod that's made their way in. Uh, it's a fantasy football one with uh, Maddie Grace and Fitz. Plus, myself and Nettie have our TNA podcast, Maximum Impact. That has got a fresh episode coming very, very shortly. But uh, Simon, Road Wild awaits us. And the fun of Sturgis. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yep. Like the ad said, you know what you get when you cross bikers and pro wrestling. <laughs> It'll be a fun one. And we'll see you next time on another edition of Reliving the War. This has been another presentation from the Grey Wolf Entertainment Network, greywolfentertainment.net.